Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch to run for your group starting tonight, if you're so inclined. Right now we're building a campaign for Deadlands Classic, so grab your player's handbook and marshal's guide because we reference those throughout this build. If you don't have them, you might want to pick up the PDFs of those books at the Pinnacle Entertainment website, which is P-E-G-I-N-C dot com. Okay, so before we get into this week's build, I need to go back and cover something that I noticed when I listened back to last week's episode, and it was also brought to my attention by some of our listeners over the past week. So when we ended the previous week's build, we had the group heading to Wyoming by airship. However, when the airship landed in Wyoming last week, I moved on as if the group had horses. How would that be possible? Technically, it shouldn't be. We should be having our group have to acquire horses wherever they go if they intend to ride them. In this case, it wouldn't necessarily be a very big deal since the Nauvoo Legion would acquire horses for the group for the ride to Utah and the group would steal those horses when they escaped. However, I can see where that could be a problem moving forward. So there are two ways to handle it. The first is to do what I detailed a moment ago. Have the group have to walk into town and acquire horses if they want them. The other is to just disregard or ignore the realities of flying machines and wait and just pretend that the horses are on the flying machine. I would note for the record that nothing I've seen in any of the published Deadlands Classic materials would allow for this, but if your group is okay with the suspension of belief in this case, and you are too, then who am I to say no? There was also the question about returning to Wyoming to get the airship once I said we were ending the last build with the group on the way to Salem, Oregon. Hang on for a minute, I'll get to that one in the build. I promise. With that out of the way, let's get into what you came here for, which is our game build and recap since we just played for real last week. First up, our recap of last week's build. As we began the build, the group was landing their airship in Wyoming. From there, they made their way to the address provided to them by Amani Lato. After gaining access to the house, they met the woman whose family lives in that house and maintains it for the board. She directed them downstairs, which is where the meeting room, records, and offices are located. They found a lot of information about the board when they were down there, but the big reveal was that the undertaker was one Ed Stewart. They also found letters between Stewart, who was using an alias, and Brigham Young. They managed to get the details of the final letter sent, which implied that if Young allowed the group to take out Bronson Atwell, who was just outside of Salt Lake City, then Young could take care of the group and both men would have their problems dealt with. They also found out that Stewart had men planted within each organization controlled by the other board members, and the group made note of the fact that Amani Lato had four moles inside her organization. Before the group had a chance to absorb all they'd found, the commander of a unit of the Nauvoo Legion called out to them, letting them know that the building was surrounded and the only way they were getting out unharmed was to surrender. We're going to go with the theory that the group surrendered. When they did, their weapons were confiscated and the Legionnaires got them horses to ride them out to Salt Lake City. Once there, the group was taken to a warehouse where they met with brother Matthias Williams, who identified himself as Brigham Young's designated voice on their deal. And the deal is this. If the group takes care of Bronson Atwell, their bounty will be removed and they'll be free to leave Utah and not be bothered anymore. The caveat is that the commander they've already met has to confirm the deed and they'll be escorted to the city limits before they get their weapons back. The group agrees to the deal, though they're positive they're going to get stabbed in the back in the end. They ride a half hour north of town, deal with Bronson Atwell, then return to the commander who gathers his men and escorts the group back to the house to confirm Atwell had been dealt with. 
Knowing they were about to get stabbed in the back, the group got the drop on the Legion, taking all of them out, then running hellbent for leather for the border. From here, it occurred to them that Amani Lato was in trouble, so they hauled it to Billings, Montana to warn her. By the time they got to her ranch, it had basically been burned to the ground. They found dead bodies and dead livestock all over the place, and about the time they were thinking about leaving, Amani Lato came out from the north of the house and revealed herself. She explained that Ed Stewart had shown up in his airship, destroyed her ranch, and basically left her for dead, so she hid, waiting for the group to show up as she figured they would. She gave them one final piece of information they could use, and it's the city of Salem, Oregon, which she claims is the home base of Ed Stewart. She parted ways with the group, and we ended the build there. So, as we begin this week's build, the group is probably going to want to head back to Wyoming to retrieve their airship. If they do, it's about a four-day ride, but they can make it without incident. Once they do that, they can take flight for Salem and make the trip in about two days. If they do that, skip ahead to their arrival in Salem. But if they decide to leave the ship and come back for it later, it's going to take them almost 19 days to ride there. And they're not going to get there without incident. As they make their way through Idaho, they'll run into Wendigo every couple of days, so there will be about four attacks during the ride. One Wendigo, which has the stats in the Marshall's Guide, versus the group. Success means a white chip and a point of grit for each player. And once they enter Oregon, which they do around day 14, things get a lot more interesting. On the first night in the state, they're accosted by three wolflings. Stats for wolflings are available in the Marshall's Guide in the section A Tour of the Wild West. It'll be on the second page. I'd give you the exact page number, but I'm using a copy of the rulebook that's a bit different than what you're using, so our numbers won't match up. If they handle the situation, they each get two white chips plus a point of grit. After that, there are no new encounters, and they make their way successfully into Salem. Salem is a smaller town than many they've been in previously. In 1876, the population was about 2,200. It certainly has a couple of taverns, a few hotels, some restaurants. You know, the standard fare for a smallish town. However, the group doesn't see a single soul anywhere on the streets. If they check any of the buildings, they don't see anybody in there. Don't get me wrong, they don't see any signs of violence or struggle. They just don't see any humans. Of course, they're going to check all over town for Ed Stewart. And at some point, they'll come across a small, unremarkable house with a small sign hanging from it. It reads, L. Stewart, Attorney. The house looks like it's been fairly well maintained. The paint on the exterior is faded, but it's not chipped or bubbled or peeling or anything like that. There's a goat in the yard that appears to be keeping the grass short. I mean, it's fatter than a goat should be, so it's certainly been eating something. And there's a waist high for the group, white picket fence surrounding the property, keeping the goat in. Now, if your group is one of those that absolutely has to have all the details, the house sits in the middle of the lot and it's 35 feet to the street from the front, 20 feet to the end of the property on both sides, and 25 feet to the alleyway behind the property. So not a lot of land here, but enough to make it quaint. The door isn't locked and they'll be able to swing it right open. But of course, your group's probably going to be on high alert, which means they're going to probably do a check around the outside of the house before they enter. There's a small porch on the front of the house, just big enough for one chair. There are windows to either side of the door, and one looks into a sitting room while the other looks into a small bedroom that appears to be decorated for a child. Moving clockwise around the house, there are two windows on the side of the house, one looks into the same sitting room, while the other looks into the kitchen. Going to the back, there are three windows back here. One looks into the kitchen, one looks into a larger bedroom, which one would assume is the bedroom of a couple based on the decor, and the window in the middle looks into an office. 
That seems to get their attention, but let's finish our circuit first. The last wall also has two windows on it. One looks into the larger bedroom, the other looks into the smaller one. So, with the coast clear, because they don't see anybody in the house, let's get them in there. Entering the house, they'll see that it's very modestly decorated. The furniture is plain, but it's also been very well maintained. The couch and the chair in the sitting room appear to be somewhat worn, but the fabric is neat and clean, and the side tables and coffee table appear to have been varnished fairly recently. The kitchen is also plain but clean. There's no evidence that it's been used in some time. All of the pots and pans are hanging on hooks on the wall, and the wood-burning stove has a fresh pile of wood in it ready to be lit. The large bedroom has nothing of monetary value in it. No jewelry, no money, no safe. Hanging in a closet piece are some men's clothing, though it all appears to be for an older man, and a few dresses. Again, the dresses appear to be for an older woman based on the cut and the style. The guess is that the smaller bedroom is a child's room. It's proven out by the decorations. There are wooden toys on the dresser and side table, and the bedding is very childlike with bright colors and designs. The closet piece in here is empty, save a small pair of boots that appear to be quite worn. But like everything else in this house, they've been very well maintained with fairly new soles and polish. The office is the room that certainly draws the group's attention, which is why I intentionally put it last on this list. Sorry about that. The office is the one room in this house that isn't meticulously maintained. There are files and papers strewn all over the room. There's a small file cabinet against the outer wall, and both of its drawers are opened, and there are files and papers hanging out of it. The desk doesn't look much better. It's stacked with papers, folders, and the inkwell was dumped over at some point, and so ink stains the desk. So, of course, the group's going to want to peruse what's here for juicy tidbits. We're going to give them basically the equivalent of taking 20 in D&D, which means we'll give them all the time they need to check through these things, since there's obviously nobody around to interrupt them. At least, not yet. The papers are either addressed to or signed by one Leroy S. Stewart, and since some of them go back more than 30 years, the assumption is that Leroy is either Ed's father or an uncle or some kind of male father-type figure. Based on what they can find, Leroy handled the legal work for the majority of the citizens of Salem. He even handled work for the city itself. They find proof he was the lawyer of record on the filings establishing Salem as an official, recognized city in the state of Oregon. There's also correspondence with a former governor of the state offering him the position of state's attorney general. His response, which he actually has a copy of his response letter, is that he was respectfully declining your generous offer. The group finds a lot of documents from the legal practice, and while they're probably just skimming them as they look for anything associated with Ed Stewart, they could pretty much get the history of the city of Salem if they look long enough. If you want to drop some more Salem flavor in there, do a Wikipedia search of Salem, Oregon. It's a whole lot of really interesting stuff there that you can use. After about a half hour of searching, they're going to finally hit the mother load. Maybe. You see, they have to work through most of a stack of files before they find the fairly small safe bolted to the floor. It's positioned between a couple of bookshelves, and there's so much stuff on it and around it, it could have been easily ignored or missed if they hadn't taken the time to check. Which means, dear friend, if your group doesn't take the time to check, they're going to miss out on this, and the entire part of the adventure is going to kind of be a bust. Don't fret, though. They'll be able to move along with what we've got coming in just a few minutes. So they find a safe. Now, somebody's going to need to crack it, and it's a target 10 check for lockpicking or safe cracking if by chance they're using that particular skill because you've created it or put it in your game. 
Once they open it, they find three folders of information that is going to be very interesting to them. The first folder is full of paperwork concerning the adoption of one Michael Lee Simmons about 40 years ago. From the details they get from the papers in there, Michael's mother and father were grifters. When they were convicted of stealing $30,000 from a wealthy couple in Portland, Oregon, Michael was put into an orphanage. He was a troubled child, and there are reports he conned his fellow orphans, taking food, money, toys, and basically anything he wanted from them using one scheme or another. However, he was also a very intelligent child, which means he tended to figure out how to get himself out of the very trouble he'd gotten himself into. There's a letter in the folder from a Dr. Mullins in Portland voicing concerns that Michael, quote, displays the behaviors of what we would consider a psychopath. He has no concern for the damage he does to his fellow orphans, and it is believed that this behavior will not improve as he gets older. Our concern is that it will only get worse, end quote. The rest of the papers in the folder are correspondence between the Stewarts and the orphanage, and they run for several months up to the date his adoption was finalized. The next folder contains the will of Mr. and Mrs. Stewart. It states that upon their death, their possessions will pass on to their son, Edward. As of the filing of the will about 12 years ago, the estimated value of the estate was about $100,000, which, as we've discussed more than once, is a whole lot of money. There's also a death certificate in this file for Lorraine Stewart, who died of a heart attack about 10 years ago. There's no death certificate for Leroy, but there's also no sign of him anywhere in the house. The final folder is the one that's really going to get their attention. This is full of reports from what appears to be an investigation into Ed's adoption. There are a number of different reports from different men detailing the whereabouts of Ed's biological parents. There's also a great amount of detail about all of the various crimes they've been accused of or arrested for over the years. And apparently it's believed that some of them were probably actually committed by a very young Michael. The reasoning for this is that eyewitnesses in several of those cases reported seeing a small child in the area when certain objects were stolen or worse when certain people fell ill only to die later on. The last of the reports in the file is dated about 18 months ago and is a report from a bounty hunter that the biological parents, Morgan and Shelby Simmons, are alive and in Portland, Oregon. According to the report, they've been posing as leaders of a church looking for followers and apparently have started picking up a number of followers. There's a handwritten note at the bottom of the report. Under no circumstances can Eddie see this. His obsession with these people is what's led him to do the things he's done. First the voodoo, then this silly group he formed. If he finds them, God only knows what he'll do. The handwriting matches the handwriting on the majority of papers they found, so they can easily deduce it's Leroy Stewart's. As the group puts their heads together collectively to discuss what they found, they feel themselves suddenly getting colder. They notice that the sky outside gets more overcast than it has been, and the snow picks up in intensity. And they see a man coming up towards the house with a half a dozen walking dead in tow. Mr. Stewart will be pleased to know you found what he's been looking for. Now do us all a favor and hand it over. Now, if they didn't get the safe opened, they're going to look at this dude like he's got six heads, so we'll adjust things a bit. He'll insist the group light a fire and wait here for a moment. And he'll leave the walking dead to watch over them. He'll head into the office and emerge a few minutes later with the files. He'll again thank them for leading us to the great discovery. Oh, and this raven-haired, rail-thin dude is definitely not Ed Stewart, for the record. Either way, this is where we stop the build for this week. Next week, we're going to find out who this guy is and what it is he really wants. 
Okay, so last week was game night for my group, so we need to do our game recap. We began the previous session with the group arriving by train in Deadwood. Jim returned to the game that night, and he was waiting for them at the station, and he pointed out the entire town was awaiting their arrival and noted that they are all on edge. They found out just how much on edge they were as they went through town and got the cold shoulder. Ultimately, they met with Bronson Atwell, who produced a letter signed by Undertaker that told them he could have O'Toole to do with whatever he wanted to and suggested he make the deal with the group to go away. The group attempted a deal to get O'Toole back, but they were certain that everything he was telling them was going to bounce back. But Atwell did offer to hire the group to finish off the rest of the board, Undertaker included, in exchange for letting him do with O'Toole as he pleased. He told him that he had O'Toole secured in a barn on his property, but was concerned about a Wendigo he had trapped in there with him and suggested the group could make $6,000 for taking care of it. He even gave him the money up front. The group requested the overnight to consider his offer, then left the tavern they'd met in to head off somewhere quiet to talk. They talked about it, decided Atwell was lying, and Tyler suggested that he go speak with the Sioux to see if they can get any support or more information. Tyler and Gabe made the ride outside of town and came upon a Sioux shaman and his men. The shaman gave the group permission to burn the barn down, provided they avoided collateral damage to Mother Earth. He reluctantly agreed they could blow it up and again made it clear they needed to keep collateral damage to a minimum. The shaman also told them O'Toole was already dead and he knows this because he'd sensed lots of death coming from that barn. As the conversation was going on, they noticed an airship flying away and the shaman pointed out that it was Atwell's and he knows that because he's seen it before. The rest of the group saw this as well and came to the same conclusion. Tyler and Gabe returned to the group and they debated their next move for a bit. Ultimately, they decided to go destroy the barn, but noted they need to speak with Seth Bullock first to let him know what they were going to do. Before they did that, they were kicking around some thoughts when it occurred to Gabe that he'd seen the handwriting on the note before. Through a series of thoughts he was able to connect, he figured out that The Undertaker is Ed Stewart. If you want to know how he made this connection, see episode 25, which is available in the archives. After that, they went to see Bullock. They met with him, laid out their plans, and Bullock noted that since the compound was well outside of Deadwood, technically it wasn't his problem. He did tell them that when they returned to town, they were to immediately leave, and he assured them he'd hold the train for them for this very purpose. They headed off to the Atwell compound and found out they were getting assistance from the Sioux as they heard arrows hitting people in the trees above them. They got to the barn and began their work. As they did, Scott removed the artifact they'd picked up in Albuquerque to show Jim, and voices started talking to Scott. He cackled and talked to himself as he and Aniston started wiring up dynamite. They destroyed the barn, got the thanks from the Sioux, then rode back into Deadwood and caught their train. They headed back to Denver, got a hotel room, and sent a message to Mr. Norwood. Four days later, they got a note with a severed finger in it. Now, the note told the group Atwell was headed for Sacramento, like we'd written up in the game. Scott decided to speak with Dead with the finger, thinking he'd hear the voice of Norwood. However, it turns out it was Atwell's voice, which reported Norwood was Undertaker, which means Gabe was also right in his assumption. And the group decided to head for Billings, Montana, in an attempt to get ahead of Stewart. And they realized they were going to need an airship to do that. They managed to buy one and flew to Billings, where they were met by two men who escorted them to the ranch of Amani Lato. They met with her. She gave them her word she was out of the board, and Jim was able to vouch for her since he'd run into her before. She provided them with an address in Wyoming that she called the meeting house for the board and suggested that they head there to grab the information that was there. We ended that session with the group boarding their airship to head for Wyoming. 
Now, before we start the recap, I need to note that Tyler was not at this game, so my daughter's boyfriend Clayton sat in for Tyler. And for the record, this was Clayton's first ever role-playing game, so we did move a bit slower from time to time to bring him up to speed on the rules of the game. And I have to say, he took to it like a fish to water. He really did well. So, all right, proud moment for me aside. Let's get to the recap. The game started with the group landing the airship just outside of town, and for the record, I didn't give a specific name for the town. I did say it was a smallish town with only a couple of taverns and a few other assorted buildings. They went straight to the house, and Jim decided that rather than sneak around, he'd just go right up and knock on the door. A young man answered, and he let him in. I had the mother we'd written in call out from the kitchen to just let the group in the basement, and the young man agreed to do that. The family kept their, we really don't care about this attitude, which Jim found disturbing, which if I I'm honest is exactly what I wanted him to feel. They made the young man go downstairs with them because, let's face it, they don't trust anybody. The kid agreed and basically took a seat at the conference table and put his feet up on it. The group checked out the maps, decided to pull them off the wall, rolled them up, and found map cases to put them in. They also took some of the paperwork, specifically some of the stuff that could implicate the United States or Confederate state governments. Gabe's thought, and Scott's initially, was that they could send some of it to the papers to discredit the governments. Jim was against it from the beginning, and the others seemed to be of neutral minds on it as they weighed the pros and cons of both. Jim specifically pointed out the fear that getting this information out there would end the stalemate and restart the Civil War, only hotter and worse than it had been previously. While the rest of the group didn't want that, some of them did want the people involved in the plots to pay for their crimes. This discussion went back and forth for some time before they decided to just check out the offices. They got into Stewart's office, and while they initially wanted to destroy all of the badges they saw, Scott ultimately made it a point to take the Triumph badge. They went through the paperwork on the desk and made their own thoughts and comments about what they saw. Gabe was curious as to whether there was any information about him in the scouting report on Triumph, but when I noted there wasn't, Jim pointed out that there was no info in there because he probably wasn't considered important enough for information to be provided. And I noted he'd probably spent much more time in Dodge City than Triumph since that's where the bigger gambling tables would be. They did the pencil trick on the stationery to find out what Stewart's response to Brigham Young was, and I had to alter it because of Atwell already having been dealt with. The response is that if Young could get the group to Utah, he could deal with them as he pleased, and they'd both have an issue dealt with. When the commander of the Nauvoo Legion called down to them, Gabe decided, without missing a beat, that he was going to try to forge Brigham Young's handwriting onto a pardon for the group, as the commander had noted why he was there. I probably shouldn't have allowed it, but I figured, why not? Again, there are always reasons in my game why I'm the bad GM, I'm just saying. So I let Gabe make a bluff check to try to pull it off, and he got a 33. So at that point, how could I not let him do it? He did, and he was the one who went upstairs to talk to the commander. I rolled a scrutinized check for the commander, and as has been the case for me lately, I rolled all ones. So he bought this little plot, hook, line, and sinker. He agreed to let the group go on their merry way, though he did say something about heading to the telegraph office to send something to Utah before they left. Jim decided to bluff the commander into not doing that and suggested to him that Brother Brigham would probably want you to not do that since the telegraph isn't the most secure method of communication. Again, it was bluff versus cognition, and I kept rolling ones. So the commander thanked Jim for thinking of that for him. And as a peace offering and a thank you, Jim gave the commander one of the files they took from the conference room. It was one with information Brigham Young would find interesting, in their opinions. The commander agreed with that assessment, and he and his men mounted up and rode out. 
Before the group headed out of town, Jim suggested they head to the telegraph office where he paid the telegraph operator $1,000 to keep the lines down or busy for a day or two, which the man, of course, agreed to do. And I didn't bother rolling because, look, if you gave me $1,000 and asked me to do that, I can assure you, I'd do it. They headed back for the airship only to find out that the Nauvoo Legion had cut the balloon loose and let it fly away. So they walked back into town and Gabe bought horses for everyone. They rode for Billings, and they saw the destruction we rode up when they got there. As in the build, Amani Lato came from the north, but since the group hadn't killed the Wendigo, that part of the build wasn't part of this. She gave them the Salem, Oregon address and bought Max's horse from him. As she rode off, the group began their discussion of what to do with their files again. They went back and forth, but it was ultimately agreed they'd ride into Billings, get a safe deposit box, and leave them there just in case. However, Gabe and Jim were the only ones who wanted to go to the bank. So Clayton, Scott, and Aniston went to the tavern, and Max headed off for some female attention, which is kind of his character's thing. I just don't report on it very much during these things for, well, reasons. Gabe paid for a year's rental on a safe deposit box, and he and Jim went into the little room to put the files in. At this point, Jim again made his point about how dangerous the materials were, and he and Gabe went back and forth for several minutes. After listening to them discuss it, it occurred to me that there was a piece or two of information they would have both had, but neither one was thinking about. So I pointed out that if the war started back up, there would most certainly be weapons of mass destruction made from ghost rock being used on both sides. Needless to say, mutually assured destruction came up during that talk. So once Gabe figured that into what he'd been thinking previously, he agreed with Jim that the files needed to be burned. So they got a metal wastebasket from the bank, walked out back, and burned them. However, they did keep the box, and Gabe put the key on a string around his neck, which is intended to be a bargaining chip later on, should they need it. The group got back together, and they decided to head for Salem. The ride went like we wrote it out, and if you're curious, check out last week's build. I did make one change, was that they only fought one Wendigo. Probably should have had him fight another, but I was feeling like a softie. Hey, it was getting late in the night, and I wanted him to get to Salem. They did have the fight with the Wolflings, but that was literally a one-round fight. So, yeah. They got to Salem and noticed they didn't see anyone in the streets. They did decide to head into a tavern. I mean, if nothing else, they'd help themselves to a drink. So I made a roll behind the screen and decided there was a bartender in there, but nobody else. They got a drink and they asked a few questions. As you'd expect, they asked about there not being anyone in the streets. The bartender noticed it as well, and he thought it was pretty odd too, but he didn't know why it was that way. He just knows it happens about twice a month for a couple of days. He suggested they could see the town marshal slash mayor, Mr. Jenkins. He gave both his office and home address. And for the record, he's the next door neighbor of the house they're looking for. They headed to the marshal's office and met with Jenkins. He pointed out what the bartender pointed out and noted that Eddie doesn't come around much, maybe once or twice a month. He also noted that Eddie was a bit late coming to town this go around. While the conversation was going on, Scott went outside and decided to speak with any dead spirits that might be around. They told him he drives them away. Those who stay are the ones who resist. We're everywhere and nowhere. From the marshal's office, they headed to a restaurant for pie because Scott had asked about it. The waitress had a bit more information. She told them that Eddie's parents had died about 10 years before. She also told them that Eddie was adopted, that he wasn't very popular when he was a kid, and that he'd tortured and killed neighborhood animals while he was a kid. I did get a little more descriptive, but I'm not going to put that here because I try to keep this a little more family-friendly than my other show. 
They took all of the information that they had and they headed off for the house. They didn't choose to check around the house before they entered. They tried the knob and when it was unlocked, they let themselves in. They searched the house and saw all of the paperwork in the office that we described. However, at first, they weren't going to try to pick the safe. That was mostly Jim's argument as he again felt everything was way too convenient. But before the group decided to go in the office, Scott decided to light a fire and kick back in a chair. When he did, he opened himself up to the voices and got the loud and clear voice of one Leonard Lenny Stewart, Ed's father. Lenny told Scott that all of the answers he was looking for would be 26, 34, 13. Scott relayed the numbers to the group in the office and Max used them to open the safe. They found all of the paperwork and Scott continued his conversation with Lenny while it went on. I made a judgment call, mostly based on the cool factor that Lenny himself appeared as a spirit to the entire group. He noted that Ed killed him two years ago, and when the group asked if they could give him a proper burial, he told them there wasn't enough left to worry about it. He noted that Eddie was always troubled, but when he went to New Orleans about 20 years ago, he wasn't the same when he got back. It was worse. He picked up voodoo, and it made him more dangerous than he'd ever been before. And he knows where his biological parents are, and he wants revenge on them for giving him up. And that's where we ended the session. So next game, they'll run into our new arrivals, and they'll get into whatever we build next week. Also, a note here. I know I said in the build portion that the stuff was 18 months old, and I know I just said in the game itself that it was two years ago that he killed, that uh, Eddie killed Lenny. What I got to say is, basically, the group built the latter part of this build because I hadn't, I had had a bit of writer's block and hadn't been able to finish it. So I told them two years, but I decided to crank it back to 18 months when I did the actual build itself later on. So that's why there's a difference there. If you want to make it two years to stay consistent with what I've done with my group, go ahead and do it. Okay, so as we're wrapping up this week's show, I wanted to encourage you to check out our other fine podcast, Role-Playing History. This week, we cover the history of the Spelljammer setting for Dungeons & Dragons. With their latest release having just recently come out, it felt timely. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or at badgmproductions.net. All Deadlands classic materials referenced in this program are the trademarked copyrighted properties of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in buying them, head to their website, peginc.com. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for license-free, royalty-free music for your next project. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And our website, as I've mentioned, is badgmproductions.net. Next week is a build only show, so we'll pick up with the thin man and see where we go from there. But that's next time, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table.